Hear those bagpipes? Hopefully they remind you of Scotland, because that's where we are today, in the highlands of Scotland. We are in Inverness, and I am interviewing a man in a kilt. Who doesn't love a kilt? Callum McNee owns a company called Stills and Hills, and he leads people on tours of distilleries and hiking the hills of Scotland. We talk about the stills, hills, and even some knitting mills, because I was actually on a knitting trip with friends. And we talk about Outlander tours, Braveheart, and all the things that are just fabulous about Scotland. Callum's tour company is called Stills and Hills, and there's another one called Hills and Stills, but he says the way to remember his is whiskey before walking, Stills and Hills. (laughs) So we talk mainly about hiking the hills and crags of this beautiful country. What are the most beautiful spots? What are the land laws in Scotland? Did you know you can hike and camp anywhere? And we cover why Callum says you need to learn to read a map instead of just relying on your smartphone when you do some of these hikes. And why anytime is a great time of year for visiting Scotland. We also cover the literary and TV hit Outlander for all you Sessanachs and where to visit and hike if you want to do an Outlander tour, or a Braveheart tour, or Rob Roy, because there's so many gorgeous castles and places to visit in this amazing land. Also, make sure you visit the website to download Callum's tips of the best distilleries, hikes, and all things wonderful and wooly about this gorgeous land. On the website, you'll see photos from our trip, pictures of Callum in a kilt, the beautiful land of Scotland, And a shout out to fiber fans and knitters. We also cover mills along with the stills and hills. The website is thisoutsidelife.com forward slash Scotland. The interview did take place in a bus. So occasionally you get a little bit of traffic noise, but I don't think that detracts from his lovely Scottish lilt and the stories he tells. So I'm here in Inverness, Scotland, with Callum McNee. Did I say that right? You did, yes. A very great guide who takes people on his fabulous trips called... Stills and Hills. Stills and Hills. By stills, we mean distilleries along the rivers and byways of Scotland. And hills, hiking. And I thought that was just brilliant. But we have him... I'm here with a bunch of knitters. And we have him doing mills, hills, and stills. We've been to distilleries, we've been to woolen mills, and we haven't done any hills. We've seen them, but we haven't been hiking We've admired them from afar. Yeah, the knitters I'm with aren't all that much into hiking. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, all right. So we need to know, uh, how did you get started in this? I mean, you were first with a tour company called Rabbies, right? Yeah, so I've been in the tourist industry for over 20 years now, most of which was spent with a a small group tour company that I kind of helped set up. Uh, it, it was already established when I joined, but it was very small. And uh, the team of us, we grew that business until we were operating all over the UK and Ireland, by which time um, it had got quite big and probably just wasn't the right thing for me. So I decided to go out on my own and concentrate on the areas of tourism that I liked the best. Uh, one of which is walking, hiking, and taking people into the hills, and the other is whiskey. 
and what's not to like about whiskey. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other subject. I always thought whiskey was like drinking turpentine. No, thank you. But yeah, I, I learned something at that McCallum distillery. Just, but let's just keep the wrong whiskey. So yeah. that's, you've just been given the wrong ones. So what do you do more of? Is it more hiking or is it dif different times of the year? You get more people wa wanting to walk and hike and sometimes... It's quite mixed uh, so far uh, with the business. I've only been doing it for two years, so I uh, can't tell you absolutely. But whiskey is the more uh, common request in Scotland, I think, because it's so iconic, because mm. that's very much what people are looking for when they come to Scotland. You can hike anywhere in the world. You can only drink Scotch whiskey in Scotland. So, uh, so far, the more commercial aspect of it uh, has been the whiskey. Uh, for me, the more fun aspect is when I get to go walking, oh. and I've had a, I've had a good bit of both, but uh, whiskey is predominant at the moment. So, what's a typical like if someone says, "Yeah, I want to do some hikes, and I would like to visit a few distilleries." How many days is that usually? Well, to be honest, not many people want to do both. It's a kind of either or. Oh, really? They either want to go hiking or do the. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a bit of overlap, I think. Uh, People are doing lots of distillery visits, appreciate a little walk once in a while to uh, get a bit of exercise and clear their head and get themselves ready for the next whiskey tasting. Um, but generally speaking, uh, customers fall into one camp or the other. So if they're going to go hiking, they want to do hiking. If they want to drink whiskey, they want to drink whiskey. So they get a bit separated, really. Okay, so what's the best time of year to hike in Scotland? We're quite lucky because we've got a pretty temperate climate. It's never too hot or too cold. So you can hike all year round. Um, the problem we have in winter is that the days are very short. So we maybe only have six to eight hours of daylight. Uh, so that kind of curtails your activities a bit. But I, I would say you can hike all year round. And the advantage of hiking off season, so maybe not in the depths of winter, but kind of spring and autumn, uh, is that there's very few other people around, so the hills are quiet, the walks are quiet, and you'd get the countryside to yourself, which is so, beautiful. Are there parts like is the west of Scotland more rain or less rain versus? So what? Yeah. You know, if I if I was going to pick, would I say okay, the eastern part by Aberdeen, or would I say Glencove or the west, or what would you say? The the weather in Scotland predominantly comes from the west. It comes from the Atlantic, and it's wet. So the winds when they blow from the west bring a lot of rain with them. We've also got the highest mountains on the west side of the country and they tend to catch the rain, the whole sort of rain shadow effect. So the west coast is wet and that can be all year round. There's no real dry season in Scotland. Um, and the further east you go, generally speaking, the drier it gets. So if rain is of a real concern, then uh, yeah, hike in the, the Cairngorm Mountains and the, down the east side of Scotland. But I think, don't you think the west side is the more dramatic and the more beautiful? Sure. The west side, what they've got there, the, the mountains are quite uh, steep. They're being more heavily glaciated and they drop quite often straight into the sea. So the combination that Scotland has of mountains, rugged scenery and water all combined together, whether it's uh, lochs, which are lakes, uh, for those that don't speak Scottish. Lochs are fresh water and we have hundreds of them. But we also have sea lochs, which are saltwater, and basically fjords. So big inlets of the sea that come in from the west coast. And you've got the mountains towering above them. And that combination of mountain and water is one of the things that makes Scotland really special. We don't have very high mountains, but we've got lots of them. And there's plenty of space for people to walk without 
uh, coming across another soul if you want. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. So if you were going to say your three most beautiful hikes in Scotland, what would you... Oh, that's that's very tough. Um, I'll give you some maybe some examples. Uh, in the far northwest of Scotland, there's a beautiful little mountain called Stack Polly. It's not high. It's only just over 2,000 feet. But it's just a little pinnacle of rock with a narrow ridge. It only takes about an hour or so to get up onto the ridge from, from the road. So you scramble up over a, a heathery moor, nice path. You hit this very steep conical uh, peak, climb up and you get onto the rocky ridge on the top and you're surrounded by a kind of rolling flat landscape with these other isolated sandstone mountains just dotted about. And it's the most unreal scenery. And to the west, you've got the sea uh, and you're looking out onto big white sand beaches and a way out to the, the islands off the west coast of Scotland. For a small hill, it's got a phenomenal view and it also has... Uh, just about enough death potential to uh, to keep it exciting because the ridge is narrow and you have to watch where you're putting your feet and there's a little scrambly bit at the end which takes you up the rocks onto the summit and once once you're there you just feel as if you're on top of the world. So on a scale from one to five how difficult would that hike be? Uh, most moderately fit people would uh, find it no problem at all but you would need a head for heights. A head for heights? Okay. Yes you, right. you don't want to be scared of heights on that one. Um, so that, that would be a, like a classic little mini mountain yeah. Uh, without too much effort, a walk of two or three hours. If you don't fancy the ridge, you can walk right round the hill and you get the same effect. That's pretty, pretty All right, special. what's another beautiful one? Uh, there's a classic sort of uh, crossing through the Cairngorm Mountains that goes from Aviemore through to Braemar. It's called the Larry Gru, which is the... Uh, Larig is a pass, so it's a mountain pass and it's a historic route through the mountains. It doesn't go over the tops. It uh, goes about 2,000 feet, which is high enough to get snowed on, even in summer. Uh, but it goes from one town and big important valley right through to another little town and an important valley going out to the east coast. So you're crossing through the mountains following a route that people have walked for centuries. Oh. And that's that's a good long one-day walk, uh, but you need transport at the other end. Mm. It's, it only it only takes about eight hours to walk through, and it takes about four hours to drive around by car to get to the uh, to, to the other side. So, uh, if you can coordinate the transport, then it's a, it's a great walk to do. What is one of the more difficult, beautiful hikes that you can? Well, in Glencoe, which is well known for its uh, rugged mountains and also its uh, kind of dramatic history, uh, it's also a very popular area. But it's rightly popular because. It's got individual mountains that you can climb, but on the north side of the Glen, which is a, a deep valley in Scotland, uh, is a long rocky ridge that has two big peaks. We call them Munroes in Scotland, over 3,000 feet. So it's got a Munro at either end, and between them it's got a very narrow rocky ridge with pinnacles that involves a lot of scrambling, a lot of use of your hands, and... For people who are scared of heights, um, we would normally recommend somebody takes a rope and knows what to do with it just to protect it. But as a one-day outing, it's it's a classic ridge traverse. And all the time you're looking down into the valley and you can see the main road down in the bottom of Glencoe and all the uh, cars and the buses and the bikes and the, they're all almost directly below you feels as if you could lean over the edge and drop a rock onto the onto the road it's just so so steep and so down below and sometimes you hear the noise but for me being up on the on the top of the mountain there you're looking down at they're just like little ants 
Oh, yeah. scurrying around and, you, so, and you're up there on the top. When you say Glencoe, you mean about the Fort William sort of area? Yeah, it's just south of Fort William. Glencoe is a, a deep, narrow, glaciated valley with an amazing selection of mountains on either side. You could go for a, to Glencoe for a week and do different walks and different peaks every day. Yeah, we drove through there a couple yeah. of years ago. It's just beautiful. So that wall of rock on the north side, so if you were coming from the from Fort William and driving up through the Glen, it's on the, up on the left-hand side. So you can uh, traverse that ridge, and it's a, it's a classic one-day expedition in Scotland. So have you ever taken somebody up on one of these more strenuous hikes, and they've told you, oh, yeah, yeah I'm up for this, and then you get up there, and they're not really uh, capable? No, to be honest, I wouldn't take anybody on that. Uh, oh. That would require a higher level of qualification than I have, just for safety. Okay. Uh, I I wouldn't be insured to take people on that sort of trip. Okay. So that, what that, s- that's what I would do for fun myself. Oh, all right. <laughs> so what are some really easy, great, beautiful hikes that people well, could do? Well, that, the thing with Scotland, because we're surrounded by the sea, there's a lot of really good coastal walks. So the Fife Coastal Path is one of our long-distance walking routes. But the way it, uh, the route it takes and the way it's broken up is it goes through lots of little villages. And those villages are connected by a local bus service. So you can walk sections of the Fife Coastal Path between beautiful little historic pantiled fishing villages with tiny little harbours full of uh, little prawn and lobster fishing boats. And there can be as much as, or as little as, uh, so just two to three, four miles apart. And the bus service links them all. So you can basically plan a walk that fits with the time available I normally recommend you get the bus to the far end and walk back because it takes off the time pressure. Otherwise, you've got to run the last half mile to catch the bus that's going to get you back to your car. <laughs> so we have actually done that as a, as an organised walk where we get everybody on the public bus at the start of the day and we drive along the coast for a few miles, jump off, have a look around the village and then walk back to the, to the transport at the end. And Fife Coast looks out towards Edinburgh, so you're looking across at the, our big city but it feels like another world entirely huh okay that sounds good now you've talked about hills mountains and monroes yep and for fans of outlander if they follow sam hewan on instagram he talks about bagging monroes so tell us about the difference between those so just over 100 years ago there was a there was a man sir hugh monroe who was a a very a famous mountain climber at the time founder of the Scottish Mountaineering Club and he uh, categorised the hills of Scotland into uh, a table listing all the mountains over 3,000 feet in height so we didn't work in metres and we still don't really work in metres to be honest Uh, most people still talk about the heights of mountains in Scotland as in feet so he made a list of all the mountains over 3,000 feet and there were at the time I think about 270 the, it's, the list has been revised a few times over the years as they've resurveyed mountains and found that some were higher and some were lower and didn't meet the criteria. Current number is 284. And because Mr. Monroe had made up the list, those mountains became known as Monroes. And that's what people talk about bagging. It's a list and you can tick them off. And it's a challenge that some people do in a one sort of one continuous trip or it might be they try and do them all in a year or they do them all in winter or they just try to do them all and there's folk who do them once and then they do them again and then they do them again yeah (laughs) tick 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 it appeals to a collector's mentality and it's a bit of a challenge and actually it really is a challenge because um some of them are quite difficult 
Yeah. Uh, at least one of them involves proper rock climbing to get to the summit. Uh, and a lot, a, lot of them, a lot of them are difficult enough that you would have to use your hands so, to, to get to the summit. So that's what Monroe's are. Um, there are other tables classifying the mountains between 2,500 and 3,000 feet and the ones that are over 2,000 but not over 2,500. But that's really for the anoraks. That's the real geeks of the, this world. You that, call them the anoraks? Them. Yeah. That's a piece of clothing. That's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it describes that sort of person. Uh, Have you never, never heard that no, before? No, no. Oh, no. Anorak is a geek, somebody that's like a bit too seriously interested in something. Okay. Right. <laughs> An enthusiast might be a polite way right. of putting it. Anyway, so there are other tables. However, the, uh, the whole thing about hills and mountains, mm. hills are, can be any size. Mountains generally have to be quite dramatic. So mountains, I, I suppose, are over 3,000 feet, but the terms are kind of interchangeable. Okay. And nothing in Scotland is higher than Ben Nevis, which is 4,406 feet above sea level, which by most countries, uh, I mean, there's other, there's, there's some countries that their lowest point is higher than Ben Nevis. Mm. So our, our mountains are not high. They, uh, they're very old and they have suffered a lot from glaciation. So they're kind of worn down and they're not like the Alps and they're not like the Rocky Mountains and they're not like the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. But they're very special. And they're beautiful. They're surrounded by all these turquoise blue bodies of water. And we have one great advantage in that we're allowed to walk anywhere we like. Yeah, explain the laws of land use in Scotland. Well, there's only a few countries in the world, uh, I think Norway and Sweden and Scotland, who have a law as wide-ranging as this for public access, that basically the law is that we can, as a member of the public, you can access any open country totally freely uh, to do anything unmotorized so you can walk you can cycle you can kayak and you can ride a horse that's amazing and yeah anyone anything that's not somebody's private garden is pretty much fair game can you camp on it uh camping's covered by some rules Uh, you can wild camp and wild camping definition is that you camp for a night or maybe two nights but as you're passing through so you're it's part of a journey. You don't go and set up a tent for two weeks. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> that's that's not within the spirit of the law. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of responsibilities because if you're going to have rights, responsibilities come along with those. You've got to look after the land. You've got to not scare the animals. You're not trample people's crops. You've not caused any damage. You don't cut down trees for firewood. Um, you've got to respect the land that you're on. And I, I think that's that's really good, and I think that works in practice. And you don't have anything that hikers have to be nervous about. I mean, there are no mountain lions, <laughs> bears. Uh, you know, your biggest is Our, it a fox? Is your biggest that's that's uh, predator? Biggest predator, yeah. Um, okay. Deer, the red deer is our largest uh, land mammal, and unless you were really unlucky and sort of disturbed one that was either injured or protecting a young, it wouldn't cause you any harm. You're more you're more danger from cows. 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 Cows are probably the most dangerous animal we have in Scotland. <laughs> Apart, of course, from uh, the one that you can't even hardly see, the midge, the highland midge. Oh. Tiny, tiny, tiny little uh, insect that will um, doesn't do you any harm, as in it can't give you any diseases, but it will uh, drive you to distraction. And can you tell about any most memorable experiences while taking people out for a, a hike? <laughs> I took uh, 
I took some friends who weren't really hikers and their kids and they were determined to climb a mountain and their parents weren't really hikers so they'd never really been up a mountain. So we found a, a mini mountain which is a beautiful little hill called Ben Anne in the Trossachs which is just a couple of hours, uh, an hour and a half really north of, of Edinburgh, Glasgow so at the start of the Highlands. But for a small mountain it has beautiful views and it's got a good path and it's easy. And the kids were just... Uh, they were just so excited. They were leaping over rocks and racing up the path and racing to get to the top. And the youngest one kept getting left behind. There was three boys. And the youngest one was getting left behind. His legs weren't long enough to, to, to keep up with his brothers. And he decided to do his own thing. And we were all sitting on the top of the mountain, having got to the summit, having a picnic, admiring the view. Uh, where's Harry? And Harry had disappeared. And it's quite steep. You can fall off this mountain. And, uh, oh, right, okay, better find him. We found Harry on a little patch of grass, a little green patch of grass, looking out over the view away from everybody else. So he was out on his own and he was sitting as an eight-year-old boy, cross-legged on the grass with his eyes shut in a classic meditation pose with his, with his hands up. His head. <laughs> Serious? <laughs> and he was going, home. Really? Oh. <laughs> I went, what are you doing, Harry? I'm meditating. This <laughs> is hilarious. I have no idea where it came from. Huh. So that that was quite that was quite amusing, and uh, <clears throat> they've they've been up a few hills since. But uh, I'll always remember that. I actually we got a photo of them doing it, and it's it's one of my favourite photos. From, All by himself, from just humming yeah. away there. Yep, yeah, yeah, daft. Totally okay, daft. if we're if somebody's going to come to Scotland and and hike, they're probably going to encounter rain. Right? Yes. So, what sort of gear do you recommend that they bring? Um, same as probably for anywhere. Hiking in the world, uh, Gore-Tex Gore- is uh, is an amazing invention and uh, pretty important in Scotland. Thing to remember if you're going up in the mountains, uh, going high, is that we're very far north. So Scotland's fifty-six to fifty-eight degrees north of the equator. You only have to go up a few thousand feet to basically turn it into an Arctic climate. It can snow on the summits in Scotland at any time of the year. So even in summer when it's warm and sunny in the valleys, you need to be prepared if you're up on the high hills and be prepared for temperatures close to zero, high winds and rain. Okay. And the other thing is we don't signpost our paths nearly as much as they do in, in most other countries. Oh, I would be totally lost. <laughs> yeah, you need a map and compass and you need to know what to do with it if you're going to venture out onto the open hills. Because when the cloud comes down, the paths might lead off in all sorts of different directions and if you have no idea where you're going you can get into trouble and we have a lot of sheep in the hills and the sheep make their own paths and just because a sheep wants to go somewhere doesn't mean it's where you want to go oh so you have to distinguish between the actual hiking path versus the sheep well sometimes there isn't a hiking path you just you just follow sheep paths or open pieces of ground or you just pick your your own best route not all of the hills have obvious tracks on all them right at all. so we really need somebody like you to be guiding the trip well i couldn't possibly say that okay. but. <laughs> but it's obvious it helps no th- there's lots of people i mean i started hiking in scotland without a guide most most scots do but i did it through the the scouts and i learned to navigate with the scouts uh, the boy scouts when i was when i was young and we had a hill walking club at school and more experienced teachers took us out hill walking and we learned how to navigate and gradually you just pick up the skills. Um, I've done a few courses to, to uh, 
raise my navigation skills uh, to, oh. to a higher level because even though today you know you have GPS and uh, that can fix you to within a meter of, of, of where you are, if you drop it or the battery goes dead uh, or you know it gets too cold and it's just not working properly, you need a backup. Absolutely. Uh, so, so the the old fashioned navigational skills, map, compass pacing distances and just having an awareness of where you are very important hmm. about 80 there's i have to say scottish hills can be dangerous uh, uh, people do get lost people have died and people have accidents and they reckon 80 to 90 percent of all the accidents are due to people being lost not knowing where they are hmm. and getting into trouble because they're in the wrong place doing the wrong thing that's fascinating that you actually could take, they had hiking clubs in school. Like, if you want yeah. to do something like that in the United States, you have to join the Scouts or something. There's, there's not a public school hiking group or, you know, things no, we, like we, that. We had uh, teachers who were just dedicated. They loved hill walking themselves. And so they just organized trips for school because we did all sorts of great things when I was at school. Things that they don't allow them to do anymore. Yeah. You know, some of those, that ridge, for instance, that I was talking about in Glencoe. Uh, I did that on a school hill walking trip <laughs> at the age of 14. Before they were worried with, about lawsuits and so Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and it's specifically banned. You're not allowed to do that as a school <laughs> teacher anymore, but I'm old enough that that was before the rules were brought in, which uh, was great. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, we took a rope. I don't know who had it, where we got one. I think we borrowed it from the scouts and we just tied the rope on at either end of the difficult bit and people held onto it like a handhold, a handrail. Wouldn't have saved anybody, but uh, it gave everybody the confidence to get over the difficult part. Oh, God, yeah. And we're all still here to live the tale. There you go. Tell the tale. So you were talking to me about, I mean, one thing that's really special about you is you study geology. So when you're out there on the West Coast or when you're in the Hebrides, you're looking at these outcrops and these beaches and their dinosaur prints. And there are all sorts of fascinating things. Talk about that area. Oh, man. Where to start? Uh, Scotland's got a lot of geology packed into it, one small country. And there's always a story, and I think, obviously, my interest in the hills, my interest in geology, I'm not quite sure which one came first. I think just being interested in the outdoors, uh, and I took up rock climbing when I was a student, and, yeah, you get very interested in the geology because it's it's, it's quite important to where you can climb and where you can't. Um, but the landscapes have all got stories, which once you have you know a little bit about the rocks and the history of, of the landscape, you could have understand why why they are the hills are the shape they are, and you you have a better understanding of where you are and what the what the hills like. So we have more cliffs on the north side, for instance, because that's where the glaciers lingered the longest, and they carved out steeper. So the north face of Ben Nevis uh, is very steep, and you can quite easily fall off. Uh, so you want to avoid that on a misty day. Stay well back from the north face. The other side is much safer, and you know. So, if you understand the geology and the structure there, then it can uh, help you with navigation and safety, and but also just enjoyment because you know a bit more about it. Climbing the mountains on sky, uh, you're climbing in the, the the base of what was an ancient volcano, and a mountain that they reckon perhaps thirty thousand feet high, so almost the height of Mount Everest, this massive super volcano. And this is all that's left of it, the little remnants that you're scrambling around on on the sky. Which is why it's so beautiful. And yeah, yeah. Lots of, lots of uh, anywhere that's had lots of uh, volcanic activity has quite dramatic rock formations. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it makes for very, very interesting scenery. So you 
just hike through the bad weather, right? I mean, if it yeah. starts pouring rain, horizontal wind, you're like, oh, well, this is Scotland. You just keep going? You usually have a plan B. Um, it's not sensible to plow on on a narrow mountain ridge if uh, if the winds are getting seriously strong and the snow is coming in. You know, it's it's a good idea to hit lower ground. So usually, when it, if I'm organising a walking trip, there'll always be a plan B. So there'll be a a main objective for the day, but then if that's not going to work out, and the weather's not good enough, the cloud comes down. Well, why climb up a hill and just walk around in the clouds? If you could go for a real nice valley walk. Uh, or you could do a circuit round the hill rather than up and over the top. There's there's so many options, and mm-hmm. we're kind of spoiled for choice. In really bad weather, I tend to stick to lower ground and forests. Mm-hmm. And then there's always beaches, which are great when the wind's blowing. You know, waves are <laughs> crashing in on the rocks, and very dramatic. We have a lot of beaches, so yeah, they make for quite good walks too. So, so is there one area of Scotland that you haven't hiked yet that you're you've got on your bucket list? Uh I haven't climbed any of the hills on the island of Rum, which is like a mini version of Skye. It's only got 20 people. And is that on the west coast? West coast. It's just south of Skye. It's also a volcanic island. So it's got, its mountains are sharp and pointy and hard rock. And I've been on the island, but I've never actually climbed any of the hills there. So that's uh, that's a little bit of a gap in my Scottish hill walking. Okay. And then... When people come, so that that's hills. Let's talk hmm. stills. Uh, what are the the top distilleries people want to see when they come for hills and stills? We will find out which is Callum's favorite distillery and his favorite whiskey in a minute. But first, I wanted to tell you a few things. Number one, this is a long podcast, but if you travel halfway around the world and you bring all your equipment, you're not going to be like, oh, yeah, thanks for your 20 minutes. Going to go now. So it we do cover a lot of great hikes. We cover places to go if you're a knitter. We cover where to go if you want to do a um, Outlander or Braveheart tour. And of course, we cover whiskey and distilleries. We cover a lot. Okay, the second thing. If you're listening to this podcast, you might not know that I do a lot more than just podcast. I'm also a published author. And lately, I've done a new thing, which is an online store. I was posting my watercolor illustrations and artwork on social media, and people said, where can I buy this? I want to see this on a coffee mug or a pillow or a shopping bag. So I opened an online store. You can visit the store at thenatureofhopeshop.com. That's all one word, thenatureofhopeshop.com. There are also links to it on the website for this podcast on This Outside Life. But on there, you'll find coffee cups with bluebirds with fun sayings like, it's time for a cup of happiness, and pillows with owls and prints and calendars. So if you're needing some gift ideas for someone you love or yourself, just visit thenatureofhopeshop.com. There's even a coffee mug with a Scottish thistle on it, and it says, call me Sassanach and take me to Scotland. (laughs) So there is something fun for you there. Um, whether you're a nature lover, Scotland, or Outlander fan. And if you love nature and want to gift people with images of the nature of hope, you can find it at thenatureofhopeshop.com. Okay, the third thing. 
Callum talks a lot about different hikes, and with his accent and these funky Scottish names, most people are going to be like, wait, where, 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 where was that? And I got him to write it all down and post it on the show episode. So go to thisoutsidelife.com forward slash Scotland, and you'll see all the hikes that he mentions. Okay, back to the show. Uh, what are the, the top distilleries people want to see when they come for hills and stills? Uh, it tends to be the ones that are uh, well-known around the world. So the the bigger names like Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, uh, Balvenie, or if we're going to well, stay in Speyside, it would be Macallan. People know Glenfarclas, Crag and Moor. Uh, it's it's quite interesting that different people from different countries, uh, they, know, they know different wh- whiskies because different uh, malt whiskies are marketed to, into specific markets. So uh, if you know Cardu is the most popular single malt in uh, Spain. Oh, really? So lots of Spanish people know it, and to them it is Scotch whisky. And yet in the rest of the world, hardly everybody, hardly anybody's yeah. heard, heard of it. So that's uh, th- there's there's kind of oddities like that. But quite consistently, it's Speyside whiskies and the... Uh, uh, the big names that I mentioned, or it's the whiskies of Isla, the island of Isla, which is famous because it's got eight distilleries currently on a very small island. And Lagavulin, Lefroig, Ardbeg, Beaumore, these are all the sort of classic smoky, peaty whiskies, which Isla is famous for. And okay. they are so popular, particularly in uh, Europe, Scandinavia, and Germany, that people make a pilgrimage. To, to, to Isla just to visit all the distilleries there. Huh, okay. And then where do Americans really want to see? They're, they're more interested in Speyside. The the big names, I say, Glenn Fiddich, Glenn Levitt, McAllen, those are better known in America. And so they tend to, to, to go for those. However, whiskey enthusiasts have a very broad interest and they um, will try and plan a trip to the dis- visit the distilleries that they like the whiskies uh, the most. You know their favourite whiskies. If you've uh, so if you've got a favourite whisky, which could be anything for whatever reason, um, I think actually getting the chance to go and uh, visit the place where it's made is quite a special thing for a lot of people. So would you say because you took us to McCallum the other day, and I thought, oh, who cares? Whiskey, it tastes like turpentine, ick. But it was pretty <laughs> impressive that whole the whole. It's uh, very impressive. It's not typical of of Scottish distilleries because it's on quite a grand scale, being very new and uh, purpose built as a a visitor attraction. So it's it's quite different. It's very impressive, and it's a world renowned whiskey. And this is a very sort of iconic brand. So lots of people are, are going to want to visit it. I quite like contrasting that with another smaller distillery, maybe a small either family-owned one or one that has quite low production. So their visitor numbers are much lower and they they just have two or three people in a little shop. So somewhere like Crag and Moor, which is actually fairly well known around the world, but it's a tiny little distillery, tiny operation. They've got two tour guides and it's very friendly and they kind of sit you down in the manager's uh, basically the manager's office at the end of it and have a dram, you know, and that that kind of thing's very special. 
and you go to somewhere where you can actually meet the people who handcraft the whiskey. Yeah, if you can go to a, a distillery and you actually get a chance, in many cases, to talk to the people who make the whiskey. So it's, it's not just some big corporate uh, advertisement for the uh, for the product. This is the actual real people making the real stuff. And you can walk around the distillery, you can see it in action. And the guys who, and it's usually guys who actually make the whiskey, are there. And you can uh, you can talk to them, you can ask them questions. They'll just be working their way around the tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, your, your tour guide will be trying to explain what's going on and they'll They'll be getting shouted at by the guys on the floor saying, no, 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 you're telling the wrong thing again. No, this is how it really works. You know, and you, yeah. you get that kind of interaction. And that more personal touch and approach is, I think, what makes it special. It's a globally important industry, and yet it feels very local mm-hmm. when you actually go to the distilleries. It's real people and not actually very many of them. You yeah. Know, so you can get to know them by name. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Do you have a favorite distillery or, or a favorite scotch that you like? A favorite distillery, I really like Aberfeldy. Um, I've worked with them for a long time. They have an excellent visitor center and a really good tour. And they manage. How do you spell that? That's Aberfeldy. A B E R F E L D Y. Okay. It's the core single malt that make that goes into the Dewar's whiskey blends. So oh. anybody that knows Dewar's and has drunk Dewar's has drunk a little bit of Aberfeldy. They may not know it. It's also bottled as a single malt, and it's a very easy drinking, light, sweet, fruity, honeyed uh, single malt, and very popular. When people try it, very popular. Uh, but the distillery, they've got some passionate staff, they've got a great setup, and despite the fact that they are owned, as many distilleries are, by a multinational drinks company, you would never know. Hmm. Because it's local, and it's local people. When the They've got a little cinema where they show their advertising film at the start of the tour. And for some reason, they built it bigger than they needed to. So it seats about 40, 45 people. And when you go on a tour there, which is usually only about a dozen folk, you go in and sit and watch the film. And there's this, uh, like a marketing film about the Aberfeldy. And then you go off and tour around the distillery. The village of Aberfeldy had a, a, a disused cinema like it closed back in the 1970s but it was a classic art deco building and the, the locals were determined to to bring it back to life as a cinema so they set up a local trust and a charity to do this and they were raising funds and in the two years that they were fundraising to 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 first raise the money and then do the work to reopen the cinema in the in the village the distillery ran film nights for free in their little auditorium just to get the, the locals back into the habit of going to the movies and, and watching films. So they basically contributed that as their, uh, that was their help and assistance to the fundraising to start the whole project off. And they did fundraisers and they uh, donated whiskey and raffled and whatever. And it was a success that the, the cinema is now open and the town has a cinema uh, of its own again, uh, run by a charity and a trust and supported by the locals and the distillery oh, and I think brilliant. I think that kind of connection um, I can't see where you would get that in, in another you know multinational company but the whiskey industry seems to be able to connect to the locals yeah and I, I really like well they that. employ a ton I, of the locals yeah well so the other thing that we've done on this trip besides 
looking at hills, visiting a still, is Mills, Woolen Mills and, and Poor Callum is used to these serious hikers or serious risky aficionados and he's got a bunch of knitters on this trip. And so he's visiting Mills. And so we've been to Cushendale Mill in Ireland. You weren't with us on that one, but here we've been to... Went to... Uh... Johnson's of Elgin, the Cashmere Johnson's, Mill. Yeah, the Cashmere. And that was fascinating. Today we were at Nokando Woolen Mill, which is a historic 19th century mill, still running the machinery from the 19th century uh, in, in what was a, a very historic, very, very cute little uh, yeah. mill setup. Um, yeah, so the, the textile industry, obviously, Scotland has a lot of sheep. It's a lot of wool, and it's always produced a lot of wool and goods. Yeah. So the textile industry is quite important. Um, not as important as it used to be, but it's still clinging on at the kind of specialist end of the market. So future hikers that want to hire you know that you know where the knitting shops are now. And, I do. And, and where I'm the now, mills are. And I know where to, to, to uh, buy a good yarn, not just tell one. Yeah. <laughs> so instead of just hills and stills, you can do hills, stills, and mills. There's no room in my business card. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to mess up the logo. It's not. It's not happening. But I, <laughs> it's really nice to to uh, to know that these places exist. That's the first time I'd ever done the the mill tour at Johnson's Cashmere. I, you know, I've driven past it lots of times, and it's actually really good. Whether you're interested in textiles or not, it's, yeah. a, it's a fascinating uh, company with a lot of history, and it was it was a good visit. Yeah, I never understood the whole cashmere from Scotland because I'm thinking, well, the cashmere is a goat. It comes from Mongolia. China, so what? But then when I realized it was the finishing with the beautiful, clean Scottish water that comes through granite, which is why it finishes off the the fabric so perfectly. And it's a tradition. The the weaving, spinning, cloth making yeah. tradition started off with homegrown wool, but it just expanded into other fibers. And you know, you've got to remember that Scotland was part of the UK home of the Industrial Revolution and the mechanisation of that. Some of the the earliest industrial mills um, were, in, were in Scotland, not in the Highlands, but in the Central Belt, so a place called New Lanark, where they set up a very modern uh, mill mm. arrangement, which was looking after the workers and creating local jobs. And it was it was a kind of community project even then. And uh, yeah, we've, we, we've been well ahead of many parts of the world in developing the the industrial side of it so the the skills are definitely here and you can see why it's been such an important industry yeah. in the past oh and you told me that i asked you because outlander has brought the show <laughs> outlander the book Ellen, has brought a lot of tourism to scotland and so you've actually had people ask you to do sort of an outlander tour. oh it's common uh, there's actually several tour companies run scheduled departures so if not on a daily basis it'll be several times a week day trips out of Edinburgh and Glasgow to visit locations associated with Outlander uh, there are groups that have been coming to Scotland for 20 years now to specifically go around the country visiting Outlander locations there's one of the one of, <laughs> one of our landed gentry owns a castle which is Castle Loud in, in the, uh, the Outlander books so it's uh, one of the you know, family homes of uh, one of the, the clans in Outlander, and <laughs> he's doing a whole a whole tourist setup now that it, 
you know, he'll him as the as the the head of the clan will show people around the the castle and guard <laughs> personally if he's in the country. You know, I tried to we tried to make an arrangement with him, and it was like, well, I'm not sure. I may be I may be in in London that weekend. I was like, well, are you going to be there? Or you're not. <laughs> so like, I'll find somebody else to do it. Well, it's not quite the same if the clan chief's not doing the doing the tour. Yeah. However, he's turned it into tourist industry himself. Uh, well, somebody's got to got to pay those big taxes. So. Absolutely, they've got they, they've got a lot of big roofs to uh, to repair. Yeah, got a lot of rain to keep out. Well, but, so then what about a? Oh, I cut you off. What no, no, it's say? okay. I was just going to say, the funny thing about that is they didn't actually film any of it at his castle, but it is the actual. It's the castle that's described in the books, um, and it's the clan and the clan seat and everything. So it's the authentic place. However, they didn't bother filming it there. They filmed it much closer to uh, the studios in <laughs> just outside Glasgow. So they filmed uh, all those scenes at Dune Castle, which is uh, close to Stirling. And that's quite good because that's an easy day trip out of, uh, yeah. out of Edinburgh. So, Okay, so you've got the Outlander trip. So what, does anybody want to do a Braveheart trip, like the areas where they filmed that? Yeah, it's still, still, uh, still an interest in that. So you could you could if somebody wanted take them on a hiking tour of Braveheart and Outlander and you could you could there's uh, and uh, if anybody's watched Rob Roy the the film Rob Roy uh, there's some really good locations in that because they actually they did film in the mountains Braveheart very little of it was actually filmed in the hills in fact oh. quite a lot of Braveheart was filmed in Ireland but don't tell anybody <laughs> well thank you Callum so it's hills and stills stills and hills whiskey comes first. Whiskey, for, okay. Whiskey Remember, whis- whis- so, still whiskey is more. So, if you want a great hiking tour and maybe some a dram or two, oh yes, do stills and hills with Callum McNee. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wasn't that amazing? I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Callum McNee of Stills and Hills. He is such a charming person and great to talk with. I could have talked for days with him. And whether you want to do a serious hike along the crags and Munros of Scotland, or you want to do a whiskey tour or all three Mills, Hills and Stills, (laughs) he's your man. And you can find out how to contact him by going to my website, thisoutsidelife.com forward slash Scotland. Or you could look on the internet, stills and hills, which is whiskey before walking, as he says. See you next time on This Outside Life.